Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, this is Jason on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity. Welcome to our show today. I am going to share with you some thoughts I have that has been on my mind lately, and I've I've come upon this issue quite a bit in doing counseling and working with parents, um, even therapists and teachers, those who are helping to support those who are neurodivergent, and Today, we're going to talk about when to remove yourself from the equation as the best possible outcome. And so to start off with, I want to explain again and relate that a parent's job is to create an environment where they, where the child wants to choose effective, sustainable choices. A parent's job is not to ensure that your child makes right decisions or choices So our job is to create an environment where they want to make right choices. And there's this thing in therapy called transactional analysis. And basically, as an overview, you can look it up online and read a lot about it. It's really important that couples in marriages understand transactional analysis. Oftentimes in marriages, their problems can be described very well through the lens of transactional analysis. And what it is is that there are three roles that each person in the interaction can take on. So if you have two parties, a parent, child, or a, or a romantic partner, husband and wife, then there is the parent role where they are in charge and are above. And then there's the partner role where they're equals and they stand on the same ground. And then there's the child role where the child is treated or even acts like they are irresponsible, immature, and not capable or ready to make their own decisions. And in every parenting relationship, there's definitely a parent-child relationship. The problem with that relationship in marriages is if the wife is spending way too much money and the husband perceives that the wife is being a child and irresponsible, then the husband might come in and try to be the parent where they control, try to fix, coerce, push, and anything else that feels like a parent role. And then the parent-child relationship creates a lot of tension and, and disrespect and unequality in the relationship. So in marriage, that's a really big problem because it's important that we stay as equals or partners. It's trickier when we are actually parents and the child literally needs our help and support as children because they are not capable of surviving on their own. And yet over time, as quickly and as soon as possible, our job as parents is to move into the partner collaborative mentoring role so that our child becomes the partner and the adult that they can. And oftentimes, if we stay as the parent, then the child remains the child long past when they could have moved into the partner adult role. And then other times, the child will stay a child long 
after they are capable of becoming an adult or a partner. And if we don't move ourselves out of the parent role, then they also don't develop or progress. So it's important that we move from an, an upper role where we have power and we are above into an equal collaborative role. And that's what I want to talk about today, especially since sometimes the parent-child role has become so contentious and destructive and habitual that no matter what we do as parents, our teen or even our five-year-old who wants to choose their own shoes or our, our young adult child, if they perceive us as continually treating them as children, then there becomes resentment and problems and fights, and then we have no influence whatsoever. And another parenting principle that we teach strongly and that we believe in is that our job is to keep a relationship of influence so that we can always be there even when things go wrong, and they will. And so we want to keep a relationship of influence, which means how they feel about us is more than more important than whether or not we ensure that they make all the right decisions. So once the parent-child relationship is clearly no longer effective, and we try to keep going the same way it's always been, either us as parents or them as children, then something's got to change. And since I'm talking to you, whichever role you are in that relationship, whether you're the neurodivergent or whether you're the parent, you have the ability to change yourself as a part of the equation. So some of the problems that happen when we parent from fear or insecurity or inadequacy is that we often use control to just get them to do what we know they need to do. And even if we're right that they need to do those things, if it undermines the relationship or their relationship with themselves, then we're actually doing harm. So their perception is just as important as the reality. If you truly are just trying to collaborate with them, but all they see is you trying to control them and they don't want to hear it, you're actually doing harm in trying to interact and help um, your adult child, even if you're treating them like you would any friend. So being aware of what patterns are happening and if there's resentments and if your child is desperately trying to create their own identity and they're trying to push you away, even though they probably need help and mentoring, it's important that you recognize whether you're doing more harm than good. When I worked in juvenile probation, there was a really generalized rule of thumb that the children, the kids, the teens, most of them were teenagers that were in for drugs. Half of them had parents that didn't care what they did. And the other half cared way too much what they did and told them what they can and can't do. And I think there's a part of all of us that when we're given imperatives that we are told we have to, ought to, should, and need to do, that we often feel like the only choice we have is to do the opposite. There were always teens in juvenile detention that would say, I don't even really like drugs, but my parents told me I couldn't do it, and I was going to prove them wrong and prove that I could. So one of the ways our teens and our young adults emulate us in trying to become independent adults is they push us away and make their own decisions. Even if they're bad decisions, their ability to make their own decisions has to come as a development piece 
as much as making the right decisions. The right decisions will come, but not unless they feel like they can make their own independent decisions. And if we are still a part of the equation, they will make the opposite decision. How many times have we heard stories of parents forbidding their child to date a certain person only to have them push away and, and maybe even elope or go out and dive even stronger into each other's arms, making it even worse? So there are some actual parenting problems that are harmful interactions that I want to point out. Parents who tend to lecture, not collaborate. Parents who tend to like to be dictatorial parents who want to ensure that their child makes the right decisions, parents who criticize or offer unrequested help, unneeded help, unwanted help, parents who parent out of fear or insecurity. Sometimes parents just have nothing else better to do because their child has taken up so much of their life and their energy that their identity is tied up strongly in caring for and parenting their child. And so maybe just out of habit, we continue to interact and force our will on our child counterpart, even when they're young adults. Parents who don't say anything anymore, maybe they've decided that they're not going to be luxury or critical or give advice, but their body language continues to scream that they're not doing what you think they should do is always a problem. It's always funny when, I, when I'm in counseling and, and maybe the child is sitting in the corner angry and and obviously mad and I I will often say hey you are really screaming at your parent over there and and telling them that you don't like them and they're like I'm not saying a word I'm like no your body language and your eyes and your just your state of being right now is clearly screaming how you are inside and what you're thinking inside and make no mistake our children know and people know how we are. We can't fake it. The most obvious one is when parents use a lot of imperatives that we've already discussed about. And imperatives are the words like have tos, ought tos, shoulds, commanded tos. And it ruins our ability to influence because anyone who feels like they're being controlled pulls away from the equation. Now, even if we've done everything right as caregivers and mentors, if the person we are in the relationship with continues to see us in the parent role, we are no longer able to help. And there's a fascinating situation that happened a couple times in the New Testament. And once again, I don't care if you're Christian or not, this is a philo philosophical principle. There were several times where Jesus, who always had great answers and responses, um, there were several times where he just sat there and said nothing. Because, well, I don't know why, because I've just surmised or what I would guess is that he already knew that he was about to be killed and yet he didn't answer the soldiers that were abusing him. So he just kept silent. And all I can imagine is that nothing he said would make things better. And that if he said anything, it would only make things worse. Not for him. He was already going to die, but for them. And so probably because he didn't want to be any part of making things worse. He just had to sit there and be quiet. And he did that on several occasions. And I think that's interesting because there has to be times where doing anything will make it worse. And so we pull ourselves out of the equation. So there's a lot of healthy parenting interactions that would be normal and fine if 
we hadn't had a history where our child feels like we put them in the box of being a child or where our child perceives us as always being the parent and not a partner or collaborator with them. So even if you are giving normal advice or suggestions, even if you're wanting to collaborate, if your child can't perceive it from a partner role and they put you in the parent box, then you have to stop interacting. So once you want to change the equation, if you are actually making things worse by trying to be involved in their life, I think you'll know it. And your job is to do no harm, make things better. You might have to back off. And that period of time where you prove to them that you're not going to get sucked back into that parent role is really important. It requires a lot of interactions and experiences where you prove to them that you are not going to fall back into the controlling parental dictatorial mode. And if, you're, if your child is screaming to leave me alone and let me make my own choices, and then they call the next day and say, I need money because I, I didn't do my money right. And of course the bank messed up again, or for some reason, all the money they had on their card is just gone, but they don't know where. And it's happened as a pattern over, you know, over months and years. That takes a lot of energy to not jump into the parent role again, especially when they're asking you to save me because I'm a child. That is the moment where you'll have to decide, does my child need help in this moment, in this current crisis, or do they need to become an adult where they can manage these crises all together for themselves? And in the mental health circles, especially addiction recovery, we call these situations tough love. And it's not because we're mean and we don't care. It's that you can give them a fish and they never learn how to fish for themselves, or you can not rescue them and enable them so that they learn that they can. The message that they need from you is that I believe in you and I think you can do hard things. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So for a while, while you're trying to break the cycle of the parent-child relationship and you're trying to be the partner, you may have to back out completely and trust that other adults in their lives or other mentors, other teens, other friends are going to be there because nothing you do is working and it doesn't help to stay involved. And so that, that might take weeks or months. It might even take years if you don't have many opportunities to show them that you are actually different, but it's going to take more than time. It's going to take actual interactions where you don't go back into the parent mode, even in body language. And so I think you're going to have to trust that. I think most of us learned how to have our partnering adult mature relationship with other people's parents and other people before we did with our own parents. I think as a teenager, I was always willing to go and do the dishes at my friend's house and talk respectfully to teachers that I really didn't respect way easier than my parents who I actually loved, but it was really easy to take out my anger and be very comfortable with them. So backing away so that your child can no longer treat you like you're the the parent and they can no longer act like the child is a really important thing so you know we we take hits as parents it's not fair we take a tongue lashing 
letting them treat us like we're trying to control them isn't fair to them either. So we have good boundaries. Now, everything I'm talking about today in this pulling out of the, the equation and no longer being a part of the equation until we can go back into the equation requires really good boundaries on our parts. If we don't have good boundaries, then we're going to get sucked back into the unhealthy um, transaction that, that occurs. So there is absolutely times where letting them make less good or less effective or even bad choices is better than the developmental damage done by giving them the message that they cannot make decisions for themselves. If we reinforce the child role to save them because it'll be really hard or bad, ultimately undermines what we want for them. And we have to decide if they're really going to die, then maybe intervening is more important than, than letting them figure it out on their own. At the same time, in extreme circumstances, there's been teenagers that were 16, 17, 18, even young adults, where the parents no longer could be a part of the equation where their child needed help so that they didn't commit suicide because over years and years of suicidal ideation, suicidal abuse, using suicide as a threat for the parent to come rescue them, the parent literally had to back away. Otherwise, the child stayed stuck in that obsessive, compulsive, suicidal mentality. And that is a really extreme, scary example, but it's still, it's still accurate because the principles apply that if every time your child needs something, they go into a, su a suicidal ideation, then you, out of fear of them losing their life and not being there for them, keeps them stuck in that enmeshed, enabled child role. So that has to be worked out where you set up other people to help them and you don't continue to react to their crises. So some signs that you're ruining their independence and growth are if you're encouraging, makes them give up something they actually like. I've seen children give up hobbies, talents, interests, music, choir, um, anything that, that they actually like. But because we as parents involved ourselves in the interaction and in the equation, they pulled out of it. Or maybe they believe that you're meeting your own needs through their activities and they resent that because they want it to be for them and by them. So in an effort to be an independent adult, they do the opposite of, of what you say, or they throw things away that are actually good for them. Um, maybe examples of saying that you really like so-and-so and that you wish they would hang out with them more. If that ensures that your child won't contact that person ever again and hang out with them, then that's a pretty good sign that they're trying to tell you to back off and let them make their own decisions. And I think it would be wise to do so. So when they're out of money for the 10th time and they're asking for help, they've lost their job again and they want you to help them find another one. Once we've seen patterns over and over, it is really hard to figure out, do we help or do we let them develop? I got to say more and more, I'm thinking development is more important than individual choices because if they become, then they figure out every crisis and problem on their own. And it's, it's hard. It's hard when they clearly don't value the things you value or they don't get it. And yet the relationship of influence will be lost if you jump in or they learn that they're not capable or that you don't believe in them. 
Another extreme example is when someone is suicidal and it teaches the principle. And that's why I like going to these extreme examples because the principles are very clear where the rubber hits the road. If someone is suicidal and everybody gathers together and jumps in to help and support that person, but that person perceives that they are putting everyone out because they're worthless, that they are the problem and they feel horribly ashamed that everyone has to jump in and help them. They feel worse that everyone's helping them, not better, then we are no longer a part of the solution and we're actually making them more suicidal. And that's a really dangerous situation because how do you help without making it so that they feel like they are a victim in need of saving or that they are the child and you're all the healthy people that are saving them because they're a screw up. And that's where taking a very clear mentor, partner, equal approach is helpful. So how do you know when to step in or not? Well, if they ask, if they don't ask, um, if they ask and they, they're going to put you in the parent role, don't, don't jump in. If they don't ask, but you know they really need it, but it's going to hurt your relationship, don't step in. Now, if they clearly are hoping you will help, but they have told you that they want to live their own life and you sense in your heart and you can trust your gut, not your insecurity, fears, or patterns, that they would actually value help, then you would you would approach them as a partner or friend. And only when it actually builds the relationship where they will feel grateful that you helped and it doesn't enable them to stay comfortably stuck as a child. So if they need help and you go to them like an equal and say, hey, if you would, if you would like some help, I'm happy to help. That's a good way that you would talk to them that is similar to how you would talk to a friend or, or a coworker that needed some help. So once the relationship feels like you don't feel the need to parent and they aren't watching to see if you're going to parent every second, you can move back in. Typically, it looks like being way too enmeshed where you're stepping on each other emotionally and relationally all over the place. And then as you pull out of the relationship and back away and there's some space and distance, and it feels really bad, like you're losing the relationship, that's a normal, typical part of the developmental aspect of going from parent-child into the mentor-slash-adult-adult relationship. So be aware not to step into, don't go back into old habits, because once you re-engage, it has to be as a different person. You cannot re-engage and do imperatives of, well, you should do this now. Now that you're asking me for advice, this is what you should have done. Suddenly you're a parent again because you're lecturing. So if we're already good at boundaries and we're good at being the adult and the partner role, not a parent role, but the child isn't ready, then we wait till they're ready. So some of the things collaborative parenting sounds like, and I'm going to give you the words to use, would be, well, when I struggled with that, I would, or it helped me too. What doesn't work is saying, if I were you, because that pretty much translates into you need to do it my way. And that's never going to be perceived as an equal or a partner. Some other words that you would use would be, I would look at this since it seems to be important to you. Maybe you haven't considered this. Asking lots of leading questions, not to be manipulative, but to actually help them figure out, well, what do you value? What do you 
want to have happen. It's really important for them to, to discover their own answer. And they'll be so grateful if you didn't fix it for them, but you help them fix it for themselves. Um, staying out of it and saying that there aren't any easy answers and that you believe in them and that they will be able to figure it out is also a great way to reassure them that this is normal to struggle. I believe in you and I'm not going to fix it for you. You can say, hey, what can I do to help? But only help if it's actually helpful. If they put you back in the parent role or the savior role and that helps them go back and re revert to or stay in the child role, then it's not actually helpful. Anything that sends you back into the old pattern of parent-child and resentment is a bad thing for your child. So asking lots of questions, maybe asking someone else or asking them to find someone else to help out because you don't want to go back into that old relationship would be helpful. Can you imagine saying to your 17-year-old, you know, we've been butting heads a lot over you and your independence and you wanting to make your own decisions and I... I love you and I want you to make your own decisions. You're asking me for advice. I'm I'm worried that no matter what I say, you're going to think or feel like you used to do. So maybe you should just go talk to uncle so-and-so or a neighbor or a friend or a friend's parent. It's okay if you know that they're going to suck you back into a bad role to not jump into that role and even say it to them and have them be like, wow, my dad really values our relationship so much that he's not going to help me. Um, in the end, I think they will respect that and value that more. So how do you know if you're the parent in the relationship? Well, it's not, it doesn't really matter. What matters is does your child or your neurodivergent young adult teenager or young adult child, whatever they are age-wise, do they perceive you in the role of the parent? And if they do, then it's not working. Even if you're doing everything right, they may not be ready for you and it's going to take some time. Look for opportunities and experiences to not jump in and help, not jump in and fix. Look for opportunities that you can support them in making the wrong decisions because it's more important to learn to make decisions than it will be to make the right decisions. And that way, if you do nine times where you didn't jump in and the one time where you think it's really important your relationship with them can take the hit where you can say, look, I love you. And I'm thinking that you're heading for a crash. And I'd like to share with you what I'm seeing and, and what I'm worried might happen. And then they might be more likely to say, oh, okay, I guess I'm, I'm, I want to see that if that's, if that's the way you approach it. But that would be the opposite of going in and saying, buddy, I love you, but you're going to screw it up. And it's my job to protect you and tell you how to do it right. Because that's never going to go over well. And not that we would say that as parents, but that's how our children hear it, even when they're 28. I hope this is helpful. Look at your transactions with your, your children, whether they're teens, children, or adults, and decide whether or not you are pulling away from the parent role as quickly as they are able to handle it. Because if you help them to develop to become the person that can make their own decisions and critical think through things, they're going to be way better off in the long run than you giving them all the answers. And we know that as parents, but with neurodivergent young adults, a lot of times we've had to be overly involved and overly enmeshed. And so I think it's a very common scenario and with very valid fears and history and patterns to back up the fact that you need to stay 
involved in the equation and therefore be the parent. Thanks for joining me today, and we will continue to bring you the best information that we've learned and that we study and that we research and continue to have on guests. So stay tuned and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. dot